So to start this morning, we're going to play a little bit of a game, um, and it's from Instagram. So I'm going to show you some pictures that are tagged. Some of them are tagged hashtag, hashtag living my best life, and some of the other ones are hashtagged blessed. And we're going to try to distinguish which one is which. And if you don't know what a hashtag is, you are hashtag blessed. But <laughs> basically, they are labels. So some of these people are saying, this is the blessed life. And some of them, from a more secular standpoint, are this is my best life. So we're going to try to see if we can kind of determine which one is which. Okay? So here's the first picture. And there's a lot of, a lot of these. It actually took some time for me to find semi-appropriate pictures for you. Um, <laughs> But a lot of them were people out traveling, and, and again, one of these is hashtag blessed, and one of them is hashtag living my best life. Can you figure out which one's which? There's a cathedral on the back of that guy. I didn't notice that till just now. But he is living his best life, and she is blessed. That's the, the difference between those two. All right, what about these two? One of those is living their best life, and one of them is blessed. I have to keep looking at my notes because I don't remember. The one on the left is living her best life, and the one, they almost look like sisters, and the one on the right is blessed. And then this is the last one. <laughs> Wait, I think, it, no, there's one more after this one, sorry. Um, just so you know, the right one is actually Pastor Tommy's Instagram feed. <laughs> this is him after a day at the gym, right? So, uh, actually, the one on the right is living his best life, and the one on the left is blessed. And then this is our last one here, um, mildly inappropriate. Um, so, the one on the right is living her best life, and the one on the left is blessed. Now, to be fair, there are a number of hashtag blessed pictures that are just scripture verses or people in worship or gospel truth, but literally it's like one per like 50 of the other ones. Most of them are indistinguishable if you just pull the two next to each other from living my best life. There is certainly a significant degree of confusion about whether or not there are any differences at all between the way that the world in general views living your best life and how Christians perceive the same thing. We are continuing our series today on the Sermon on the Mount, and as a reminder of what Pastor Tommy has taught us the last couple of Sundays, these first verses are called the Beatitudes, or makarisms from the Greek word makarios, which means blessed. They're blessed-isms. Jesus is teaching his disciples, he's teaching us about the blessed life, a life of fullness, a life of wholeness, a life of shalom, the best possible life. And that's why we've titled this part of the series, Living Your Best Life. But please don't get confused with the hashtag living your best life or even the hashtag blessed life conceptions that are dominant in our culture and in our world. As we go to God's Word, what Jesus actually says about living your best life is that when we become disciples of Jesus, followers of His way, our lifestyles, our best lives are supposed to be radically different from the world around us, whether that be non-believers or those who identify as religious and upright. 
please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. I really encourage you, open God's Word for yourself, whether that's a Bible or an app or uh, Instagram, however you need to find those verses. There's a sheet inside your order of worship, but we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Listen to Jesus' words for us today. And as we approach God's Word, let uh, let me say a prayer for us. Our Father in heaven, we are approaching your Word. You look just at the first verses there, it says that Jesus opened his mouth and taught. And so we ask you to teach us this morning that we would hear your words, that we would drink deeply from the everlasting spring of life, that we would be changed from the inside out by the power of your spirit and the power of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to approach these in a step-by-step fashion And as we look at the first verse, the question I'd like to ask is, what are you hungry and thirsty for? What is your supreme desire? What are you famished for? What is the desire of your heart? Stop and think about it just for a moment. If you could have anything at all, what would it be? It could be stuff, it could be a feeling, it could be a relationship, it could be anything at all. What is that that you would have? I'm going to give you an awkward amount of time now to think about it, to think, to meditate on it. Maybe write it down. Just take a second. It's easy when we look at the world around us, when we go on Instagram or TikTok or whatever your, your poison is, what we are told is the good life, the blessed life. Living your best life means finding happiness and contentment. And it means finding it usually through money or power or pleasure. I don't know if you've ever... Um, seen this movie, but there's a guy named Al Pacino, and he plays this Cuban immigrant named Tony Montana in the movie Scarface. And when he arrives in America, he says very memorably, in this country, you got to make the money first. First, you get the money, then you get the power, and then you get the woman. I think he means women, but I was going to actually show a video clip of this, but I watched it on YouTube where it's kind of censored. Friends, that movie is super inappropriate. I don't know. There's probably nothing in that movie that you would want to emulate about this guy becoming a drug lord and just murdering anyone who is in his way, and yet that quote, get money, get power, get whatever it is you want, is the recipe for the good life for a lot of us. That's how you will be happy. If you hunger and thirst for money, for power, for pleasure. And yet those who pursue that path 
And that path, honestly, logically, seems like it should work out. Go get what you want, and at the end of the day, however, they are left with empty hands, even though that is the thing that they have pursued, grasping at the wind with a sense of deep longing within them that the life that they have spent pursuing these things from one thing to the next has left them wasted and unfulfilled. Jesus says, blessed, let me get rid of that image. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The reverse of this beatitude would be, cursed are those who hunger and thirst to satisfy themselves, for they will be unsatisfied. Later in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says it like this, For the Gentiles, or the non-believers, seek after all these things, the things that we need in this life. They seek after them, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Now, I want to take a turn a little bit and stop picking on the non-believers. If you're a non-believer, welcome today. I'm glad that you're here and pick on us a little, and put a little religious framework on it. What do you hunger and thirst for? Again, another way to say it is, why did you come here today? What were you hoping to get? What is your supreme desire? Is it God? Or is it His blessing? Is it righteousness, a rightness, a right relationship with God? Or is it, the title of our series, is it the blessed life? Is it your best life? Do we want God or do we want what he can give us? Let me put it this way. If over here on this part of the stage is the blessed life, that's where the musicians are, happiness, contentment, wellness, shalom, And over here on this side of the stage was your dad, your father in heaven, Jesus, the crucified one, the tortured one. Which way would you go? You see, there's not really any difference between the goal of religion and irreligion other than your method. The goal of the world is to have the best life. The goal of religion is to have the blessed life. And they are basically identical. Happiness and contentment, peace. The irreligious, like the prodigal son, go for it following the Tony Montana way. First money, then power, then pleasure. Seek those things and you will get them. The religious... Like the elder righteous brother, follow the way of religion. Obedience so that they can earn the blessed life. The paradox is that if your supreme desire and goal is to live your blessed life, to get the good life, then you will never get it no matter what approach you take. If you are directly focused on achieving happiness and contentment, if that is what your end game is, then you will never achieve it. Whether you approach it by seeking the things in this world yourself or by trying to obey God enough so that He owes it to you. The blessed life 
is not found when you seek it, but when you seek Him. When one's supreme desire in this life is to know God, to be in fellowship with Him, to walk with God and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the light in righteous, right relationship with Him, those things then will be added unto you. The blessed life is not sought directly as its own end. It is a byproduct of seeking God and His righteousness. And that righteousness, that right relationship with God is a gift from God. If you believe that you are righteous, that you have earned the good life by your obedience, or that you are just going to try hard enough in this life and hope that at the end He's going to give it to you, then you are not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You already have it. In that mindset, you are already righteous. On the other hand, if you recognize your need for God and His righteousness, then you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness for Him. And Jesus says to us, you will be filled. Not you will fill yourself with your righteous acts, but that God Himself will fulfill our longing for Him. Such hunger will be fully satisfied. And when you read the verse there, that word for satisfied is the same word used for fattening animals. You will be well filled. If you are famished for Jesus' righteousness, you will be filled by what He has done for you. His perfect life, His death on the cross, His righteousness becomes ours, and all we have to do is hunger and thirst for our Father in heaven. It's what we just sang. All we have to know is our need for Him, that He is what we want, to glorify and enjoy Him, not just His stuff and what He can do for us. We put our trust, our hunger, our thirst, our longing in His Son, Jesus, and His righteousness. And when we have been filled by Him, when we have that right relationship with God, when we have the righteousness of His Son, His perfect Son, given to us freely, that is then evidenced in our life in a new reality, in a new identity in the way that we interact with others. Verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So one of the evidences that we have received this righteousness, that we have received the mercy of God, is that we become people who are merciful by our very nature. Please note, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who practice mercy. He says, blessed are those who are merciful. It is part of their identity, of their internal reality. Jesus told his disciples, and he tells us today, that those who have the blessed life are inherently merciful. And this was in a context of uh, the Greco-Roman world where the empire and the world around them believed the exact opposite. It's hard for me to imagine a world where mercy is not a value. But that is the world in which Jesus was teaching. The, the uh, people, the philosophers and the, the people that were actually the righteous in the Roman Empire, that are here the values that you need to have, taught that mercy and pity were, quote, 
a defect of character, unworthy of the wise and excusable only in those who have not yet grown up. The world that they knew thought that mercy was an impulse. The same way that our culture today, I think rightly, says that excessive drinking is an impulse. Addiction to drugs is an impulse. Alcoholism, um, gambling is an impulse. Binge eating is an impulsive behavior. The Greco-Roman world said, oh yeah, and mercy, that also is an impulsive behavior. The devoted and the righteous of the Roman Empire taught that mercy is not governed by reason at all and that humans must learn to curb the impulse. Jesus and Christianity, for the most part, has changed the entire way the world looks at mercy. That said, you don't have to go far, even in our world, to see that mindset. Just go to the movie theaters. There are countless movies, and no offense, they seem to be the ones that attract the male gender, that are all about revenge and how sweet and good that is. We had some friends come up from Texas, and this is not their fault, but we watched a movie on TV, and it's called um, John Wick. I heard someone over here say, yes. (laughs) I'm not going to look, because I think it's a student that I'm in charge of. We actually watched the third installment. There's three of them so far. A fourth one is on the way. I saw this morning, 2021. Don't go see it. Um, Because this is the plot line of John Wick. Keanu Reeves, he's a retired hitman. He has lost his wife recently to some illness. That's very sad. Um, And some criminals break into his house, and they steal his vintage car. And this is kind of harsh. They kill his dog. I know. It's very sad. Um... And they were a gift from his wife before she passed away. So they were very sentimental. Well, the rest of these three movies, and the new one as well, I'm sure, it, that's the whole plot. You're, you, you are now up to date on the next three or four movies of John Wick because the rest of the movies are all about him basically killing anyone and everyone because of that incident. He goes after those guys first, and then it just like piles on person after anyone. He just walks into a guy on the street, kills him. That is how that movie goes. I looked up on Quora a question, just because I'm not really super into John Wick. I don't know if you noticed, but um, a question on Quora, does John Wick show mercy? And the most popular answer there was, was basically, mercy towards enemies was, is, and will be a foreign concept for John Wick. And then in bold, which is more disturbing, honestly, I prefer him that way. We don't have to go far to see the same concepts. Jesus' disciples were not John Wick fans, but even they who spent time in the presence of Jesus struggled with the extent of mercy and forgiveness that Jesus taught. Later in Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable about this unforgiving servant to flesh it out. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize it. But basically, a guy is brought before the king, and he owes the king an incredible amount of money. Some of the scholars have crunched the numbers, and basically, a regular person in that time period would have to work 60 million days or 193,000 years to pay the king back the debt that is owed on the day. And basically the translation should be, um, he owed the king zillions of dollars. And the king, who is God, 
demonstrates incomprehensible mercy and forgiveness to this servant. And the servant leaves the presence of the king and immediately outside the steps of the, of the palace runs into a guy who owes him about four months' wages. And instead of being merciful, has him thrown into prison where he'll never be able to pay the debt back. The king finds out about that, brings the first servant back in front of him and says, quote, Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And then he throws him to the jailers himself. And Jesus' summary of the parable is this. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Those who have genuinely received forgiveness, those who have hunger and thirsted for God and His righteousness, those who have received and acknowledged within their souls the overwhelming mercy of God cannot help but be merciful to others. It is who we are as disciples of Jesus. One of my professors in seminary, Steve Brown, said it like this, experiencing God's mercy and grace is like going outside in a torrential downpour. By the way, aside, funny, this is the only day it's not raining. You cannot go out into the presence of God without getting that stuff all over you. Imagine for a moment the person who has hurt you the most is in your hands, is in your power. Is there a vindictive spirit? Or is there a spirit of pity and sorrow? A spirit, if you like, of kindness to your enemies in distress. We are to feel a sense of sorrow for all who are helpless slaves of sin. That is to be our attitude towards people because Jesus felt that attitude, felt that sorrow towards us. While we were still enemies, He died for us. And his act of overwhelming and incomprehensible mercy is what changes us from the inside out into his disciples. A people who by their very nature are merciful and cultivate mercy in their lives as a defining characteristic of what it means to follow him. It is an internal change. It is not a new rule or an external that we add to a list of things we must do and we keep because we want to end up in the right place in the good life. It is a reflection of our hearts. And verse 8 takes it to there. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word pure there means a lot of things, but primarily it means not divided. Think of pure clean water. There are no impurities or divisions within it. It is whole and one. Jesus says that his disciples, in their hearts, in the center and source of their whole inner life, not just their feelings, but their thinking and their volition, is pure, unmixed with anything devious, ulterior, or base. His disciples are without guile, characterized by being utterly sincere, their whole life, public and private, is transparent before God and men. This is something that Jesus taught often, especially with regards to the religious, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He called them hypocrites. 
because the internal did not match the external. Read the New Testament. Jesus is amazing. I mean, I know you know that because you're here, but his wit and his intellect and his ability to give digs and burns that drive to the heart of the matter are jaw-dropping. One of my favorites is I think I like it every time he hits the Pharisees. But one of my favorites is when he's speaking to large crowds of people publicly. If you want to get at a religious leader, talk to him in public in front of everybody. And he goes off on these religious leaders for a whole chapter. These are the upright leaders in the community who follow the rules, the pastors of the community. And he says to them in Matthew 23, 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. Can you imagine if I called Pastor Tommy up here and was like, Woe to you, Pastor Tommy, you look ripped and great, but inside you are the walking dead. You look like you're living your best life. Your Instagram shows that everything is beautiful and wonderful, but the reality is that under the surface is death. Jesus' disciples are characterized by inner piety and purity that flow from a single-minded, pure devotion to God. It is a heart, the type of which only God can give. We can scrub the outside of our tombs with the strongest bleach all day long, but only the resurrected one can raise our dead hearts within us. Seek him first. As we wrap up, notice that the second half of each of these lines is expressed as promises for the future, which we receive in some part now, a foretaste When we receive as a gift from God through Jesus a new heart, a pureness, we receive a foretaste of what it's like to see God face to face, to be in His full presence. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then on that day face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. Hunger and thirst in this life, we know, as Tommy was pointing out, that this is a broken world, and we will hunger and thirst. They are perpetual characteristics of the disciples of Jesus. But one day, we will have more than a taste of His provision. Revelation seven sixteen says it this way, We who are His shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What did you come here for today? What are you hungering and thirsting for? Come to the One who loves you made you, who died that you might be His righteous, merciful, and pure in heart, all given to us at no cost to ourselves because He has paid the price for us Himself. Because He has loved us so, we love Him. And the good life, our best life, the blessed life, is just a side effect.
Amen? Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for the abundant grace and mercy for forgiving us for zillions. We know that only you can grant us righteousness and mercy and a pureness of heart. And so we beseech you, do that to us today. Do that in this moment. Do that as you make us more and more into your son's image. Father, we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.